Hi, and welcome to this installment of our New Books in the Arts and Sciences panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia University's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Professor of English and Comparative Literature Jenny Davidson's book, Reading Jane Austen, which shared a panel with Deborah Nord and Maria de Padista's book, At Home in the World, Women Writers and Public Life from Austin to the Present. First, I'll bring you Jenny's comments from the panel about the book, and later, I speak with postdoctoral fellow at the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, and lecturer in English and Comparative Literature Arden Hegeli about the book, its form, and conceptions of the text as a body. Uh, it's so great to see everybody here. I'm going to be extremely brief. So I got the invitation to write this book a couple years ago. Linda Bree, longtime friend of mine, and in fact, the editor of my first book, uh, based on my dissertation, published at Cambridge uh, almost 15 years ago now. Uh, she is editing a new series that is called Reading Writers and Their Work. Uh, that is not specifically intended as introductory for students, but to be less specialized than a monograph and to be certainly um, thinking about wider audiences or less academic audiences. So um, uh, she read an essay that I wrote uh, for a Blackwell companion to English literature that was called Austin and the Conditions of Knowledge. Uh, and I think she, that, that was the specific prompt for her to invite me. I've described this moment uh, to several other people who, may have heard, who are in the room who may have heard me say this already, but you know in a certain vein of fantasy novel or in the movie adaptation, like there's a sound effect when someone makes a rash vow or says something that has the <laughs> ring of truth where there's like gong. <laughs> I could feel as Linda invited me to write this book that it was not an invitation that I could possibly think about saying no to. I've been reading Austin pretty much as long as I've been reading any books at all, which is from early childhood. And I think that reading Austin has formed both um, my interests in literary style and in the relationship between history and literature, and more generally, a lot of the ideas that I have about how I relate with other people in the world or what happens in a classroom and so forth have certainly been, uh, have been filtered through Austin. So it was almost more like downloading a chunk of my brain onto pages than it was like <laughs> writing a book. I reread everything, I marked up everything interesting. I knew I didn't want to write a book that would just move chronologically through the novels in order because there are many very, very good books that do that already. So I let the thoughts kind of fall into different sections approached that way. Uh, and the other constraint I have, um, self-imposed constraint, was that I thought, unlike most of the times when we're academics and we sit down to write an academic book, I'm not going to go first and read criticism. I've been reading Austin and Austin criticism for a good 25 years now. I'm only going to cite criticism if it's so important and vivid in my mind that without having looked back at it when I'm trying to explain something, I'm going to give that citation. So I've got a, a, anything that I've cited uh, that's a work of criticism in the book is a true hearty recommendation rather than just a, a paying of dues. So I think I'll leave it at that and uh, hand over to you. Now, we'll hear my interview with Arden Hegeli, postdoctoral fellow at the Society of Fellows and lecturer in English and Comparative Literature at Columbia. I'm here with Dr. Arden Hegeli, postdoctoral fellow at the Society of Fellows. Thanks so much for being with me today. 
Oh, thank you for having me to your podcast. Of course. Um, so I thought we could start by talking about the different pieces of writing and their forms, which is at the forefront of Jenny's book. She's thinking about the connections between form and content, form and social convention, and of course the form or organization of her book is organized around these formal and thematic considerations. Um, could you comment on some of the connections that Jenny draws in her book or how you see these connections in the literature that she writes about and you also study? Thanks for that question. Um, well, I think what is so great about Jenny's book is that it's really a writer's book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I mean, all books are, are written by writers, but um, she's taking her own experience as a writer and as a creative writer. She's written four novels in addition to her academic work mm-hmm. and, and applying it to this very um, subtle and nuanced investigation of Austin mm-hmm. as a formal writer. And mm-hmm. Jenny Davison is very interested in form in all of her work, but I think especially in her investigation of Austin, it is um, the most apparent compared to, um, you know, other current projects she's also doing. Um, And in this book, it's very striking to me because she has almost a personal relationship with Austin that she's cultivated since her childhood, and she talks about reading Jane Austen in her early childhood. And so I, I think that because of her um, comprehensive knowledge of the books and thinking about how um, as, a, as a child reader, as a student, and then ultimately as a professor, how her relationship to those books um, has influenced her own development as a creative writer, that's really one thing that's explored at the heart of this book. Mm-hmm. And so um, when she talks about form it's with this very refined and personal sense of how Austin's forms are working it's different from how other people perceive um, Austin's use of form Mm -hmm. one thing that's pretty typical I would say in studies of Austin if you were going to be assigned a project of you know write a book called Reading Jane Austen I think that the typical approach would be take one chapter for each of her novels in chronological order. Mm-hmm. Maybe you would put Northanger Abbey at the end when it was published, or maybe you'd put it at the beginning because she wrote it first. Um, you might have a chapter on her juvenilia or her unpublished writing. You might have a chapter on the manuscript she left behind at her death. But really, it would be sort of a survey divided into chapters, one for each text. And there are six published novels, so you'd certainly have um, a chapter on each of the novels. And what I really find good about Jenny's book is that she doesn't do this. Mm-hmm. Um, she takes a very uh, creative approach, which is to look at how language and human interaction are working at different stages um, and different locations within Austin. But there's no kind of isolation of any of the particular texts. Mm-hmm. So her chapters, I'll just uh, recap them for you. Um, mm-hmm. They're called Letters, Conversation, Revision, Manners, Morals, Voice, and Female Economies. Mm-hmm. And so um, what she's able to do by bringing in these different um, ways of looking at how language um, is at play in Austin is really to investigate how particular forms like dialogue or the letter recur throughout all of Austin's published work and even her unpublished work. And so to me, this is an extremely um, 
novel approach. Sorry for that. <laughs> it's an extremely um, original and um, refreshing approach to Austin. And the effect of it is really to bring you, the reader, into a much closer proximity, mm-hmm. both to Jenny as a, an interpreter of Austin and to Austin herself and the kinds of um, linguistic devices that she's using. Mm-hmm. So that's really where I see um, Jenny's creativity and originality in her investigation of form. Yeah, I love this idea of the familial, which she spoke about at the panel, mm-hmm. um, and you brought up just a minute ago. And I was wondering if you could uh, touch on that. Um, earlier on the podcast, we heard her talking about how Austin is like a family member to her, which I find, um, for myself, you know, I love Jane Austen. I don't feel like I know her like a sister or or in the way that Jenny seems to. And I was wondering if you could... If you had any thoughts on that or you could share your own experience. Oh, thank you. Um, well, it is very um, it is very noticeable and um, important that Jenny dedicates the book to her mother, mm-hmm. um, where it's about female relationships. Um, right. And that's in the paratext of the, the um, stuff that surrounds the book, having the dedication to her mother, but it's also in the text itself, mm-hmm. talking about these very intimate forms of female relationships. Mm-hmm. And her final chapter on female economies is about, it's more of a historical chapter on um, the place of women in the world, in the Regency, um, and how they're governed by certain social structures, like their physical confinement to the home. Mm-hmm. There's this one really memorable moment where she talks about how Jane Austen's niece can't come to the house um, unless she travels in a donkey cart. You know, there are, you know, there are all these sort of um, restrictions on the movement of women. And so, it, and how um, the home as a space kind of fosters a sort of intimacy. And so this is mm-hmm. at the heart of Jane Austen's biography, which she gets into in that final chapter. But it's also something that we see very much in the novels. Mm-hmm. The relationships between women are arguably more important than the romance plots that occur in each text. Mm-hmm. But then... Thinking about Jane Austen as part of a family and part of a, a part of a community, potentially that extends up to you, is really fascinating. Um, we we do know that Jane Austen came from a very close family. Mm-hmm. She was the seventh out of eight children. It's the same as Virginia Woolf, actually, mm-hmm. but Virginia Woolf was in a blended family. But it's it's interesting that they're in the same kind of position. Um, she had one sister, the rest were all brothers, mm-hmm. and her father was a clergyman, but he also brought in um, boys to teach them um, in the home as you know a way of supplementing his income. So really, she was in this very literary and creative environment right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Her older brothers helped to direct her course of reading, um, her brothers, when they were at Oxford, made a journal that she contributed to. Mm-hmm. They would stage plays. They adapted novels that they were reading, and they would perform them as plays. And this was all happening when she was just a teenager. So well, one thing, one project I'm working on now is actually looking at Austen's uh, juvenilia, her writing that she did between the ages of 11 and 17, mm-hmm. and seeing... Um, how that counts as um, an indictment of what's happening in children's literature at that moment. Mm. Anyway, that's my own, my own project. <laughs> but um, 
she really is in um, a family environment that's encouraging her to become a writer. And, you know, if you look at the juvenilia, each piece is dedicated to a different family member who's like the patron. Sometimes the family members write in the margin, you know, I promise to pay you 100 guineas for this wonderful piece. Um, other times, you know, another family member will illustrate it. And there's, there's this kind of um, collaboration and participation on the part of the family in creating her as a writer. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that context of family intimacy was vital to her development. But then, you know, interestingly, is also something that she lost. Um, mm-hmm. Her father retired. The home passed to her eldest brother. And the family moved to Bath. And she had to give away most of her prized possessions. A lot of her books were taken away from her. Mm-hmm. And this big upheaval in her life actually co- um, corresponds in time with this, like, 10-year gap where she's not writing. Mm-hmm. So, really, there's something about being in a domestic atmosphere mm-hmm. that is encouraging of her as a, as a as a writer. Is this is really important to her own self conception and also to the way she represents the family in the novel. Mm-hmm. So then, getting back to your question, okay, so <laughs> Jenny is feeling um, a kind of intimacy with Austin as a friend or a family member, and I think that the way that she so elegantly and transparently opens up Austin's prose for you, mm-hmm. it, it has that effect of trying to bring you, the reader, in I as see. well to considering Austin as an intimate person whose mind you can really engage with. I see. Yeah. Oh, that... I mean, to, to be able to do that as someone writing about another's works, I think, is an incredible skill that I mm-hmm. wish more people were able to do. It would make our reading of their works and of others so much more enjoyable for a start, but also, you know, bring you this new level of understanding that Jenny is is enabling you as the reader of her book, Reading Jane Austen, mm-hmm. to get to. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about this idea of home and domesticity, which is intrinsic to Jenny's work um, and is also intrinsic to Deborah and Maria's book as well, which shared the panel. Um, and as Jenny and Deborah and Maria are showing the idea of being at home versus in the world is this false dichotomy, right? Home and world, as you are talking about, are one and the same and in, mm-hmm. in very interesting ways. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this idea, sort of expanding on, on what you were saying a little bit about that. Um, how might home versus the world or home and the world does it crop up in the literature that they're writing um certainly you're talking about austin's family as being the locus from which she is able to write um so i yeah that's a sort of ill-formed question but i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that thank you um i thought that's all right um (laughs) yeah well what what i was really struck by when reading uh, the opening chapters of Deborah and Maria's book, which is where Austin is really discussed mm-hmm. in connection with uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, who writes just before her, and then Charlotte Bronte, who's writing later in the 19th century, um, is this sense that we assume that women and women writers are 
kind of trapped in a domestic space by the con- the material conditions. Mm-hmm. And this is something that Jenny's book gets into very, um, very much, mm-hmm. the material conditions that mean that Austin has a kind of deliberately restricted palette. So, mm-hmm. for example, in Jenny's book, she talks about how Austin never represents two men talking together without mm-hmm. a woman present <laughs> because she had no experience of that. Right. Of course. So, and you would think, well, I mean, honestly, these are just two people talking to each other. Surely you could imagine that. But she draws a very fine line about the kinds of things that she's willing to represent. Mm-hmm. And um, in her letters, Austin talks about um, that she's painting on a tiny little ivory surface, which is only two inches wide. Mm-hmm. And it, she's painting with a very fine brush, this kind of type of miniature. Mm-hmm. And in other letters, she talks about the right subject for a novel is three or four families in a country village. <laughs> and so she never really gets beyond her sphere. Um, I think in all of the novels, probably some of Darcy's relatives in Pride and Prejudice, like Lady Catherine de Bourgh, those are the most socially elevated mm-hmm. characters. But she never gets really into the aristocracy. This is very uncommon for novels at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, she keeps the social world in this very um, restricted mode that is the mode that she herself knew and participated in. Mm-hmm. And so you'd think that, oh, you know, Austin is confined by all of this. And yet what's so amazing is that her early writing shows her defying all of that convention, all of her teenage writing that I was talking about before. Mm-hmm. It shows her um, bringing in characters who are of many different social ranks. It shows women getting drunk all the time. It shows <laughs> women proposing to men. Um, it shows young girls murdering their fathers and mothers. Like it's it's extremely wow. varied and extremely vivid. So we know that she um, was certainly capable of that kind of imaginative life. Mm-hmm. And um, one way of doing a kind of comparison between her early writing and her published works is to look at travel and journeys. And this is what Deborah and Maria discuss a little bit too. Um, Where in her published novels, the characters never really leave a a very kind of set geographical space in England. Mm -hmm. But in her juvenilia, characters are being sent all over the place. Mm -hmm. And in fact, she mocks certain characters for having a poor understanding of geography as they travel from one place to another. Oh, you know, this girl is not educated enough to know that this city is in that part of the country. Right? <laughs> um, and she, you know, is very interested in sending people to remote corners of Scotland and stuff like that. Right. So um, it's, it's a very sharp and striking contrast. Mm-hmm. And it's one that I think people haven't fully resolved why Austin makes such a change from having this kind of adventurous world Mm-hmm. in her early writing, to having a very refined and restricted world in her published work. But, I mean, as you say, Deborah and Maria show that that opposition is false, mm-hmm. right? That she's, that Austin, as well as her contemporaries um, from the 19th century, are really thinking about travel, escape, exploration, mm-hmm. adventure, mm-hmm. and that it's these modes that are kind of pushing fiction to explore new boundaries. I see. Yeah. Yeah, so so you might say that that idea is influencing novels at this time, maybe. Yeah, 
I that that is a fascinating co- shift between Austin's younger works into her older ones. And is that what your project is looking at, or is it looking at something slightly different? Um, well, I'm currently writing um, a talk on Austin's juvenilia, so it happens to be in my mind at, at this moment. Sure. Um, my own work on Austin actually looks at her as. Um, and I, I do look at the juvenilia for this in part, and I also look at Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. as um, she's known for this formal innovation called free and direct style. Mm-hmm. And Jenny gets into this in great detail and with some extremely um, careful and sensitive readings of Austen, um, how her style evolves and how she represents the internal thoughts of characters without using direct speech. Mm-hmm. That's essentially the definition of free and direct style. And normally Austin is credited with being the inventor of free and direct style in English. I see. And um, it's a way of kind of getting into the mind of Darcy where he you know, really didn't want to meet Elizabeth or something like that. Like, and that's, that's one example. Um, where it's like the really that shows you that you're actually hearing his thoughts represented on the page without a quotation mark. I see. And so Jenny goes through and finds many instances of this, but she says it's an art rather than a science to detecting the style because Austin is so subtle with her narratorial shifts. Mm. So um, I'm thinking about free and direct style too, and actually its evolution um, before Austin coming out of other kinds of forms. And how it appears, for instance, in Wollstonecraft's Mariah or the Wrongs of Woman, sure. a text that comes up in Deborah and Maria's book. Yes. Um, but then even before that, in the um, historical records of madhouse patients in the late 18th century, oh. where the speech of these patients is represented in almost a kind of prototypical free and style. Hmm. And... I argue in my in my own work that this is done for a specific reason. Um, it's so that the language that allows you to diagnose the speech as mad, like there's some strange verbal expressions, uh, right? Anything that would allow you to diagnose the speech as being mad mm-hmm. um, is not represented directly as a form of con- containing it so that the reader is not encountering it directly because there's this idea about the communicability of madness in a kind of literal way that it can be communicated through speech so this um looking at this in madhouse case books leads me into a discussion of how um speech is monitored in the french revolution and the condition of women that we see in wollstonecraft Mm -hmm. and then finally in austin you get this context where you think that it's so you know sanitized and you think that it's such a um, you know, idealized environment. But in fact, with some of her characters, she is using the same technique mm-hmm. to monitor the speech of the characters to restrict the transmission of certain idioms that are thought to be dangerous. And so, um, you know, there's really a through line that I draw from the Madhouse case history <laughs> through Wollstonecraft to Austin. But I guess, like, it, it relates a bit to the question of being at home in, or in the world. Mm-hmm. Because... Um, Again, it, it relates to the problem of being in a community and communicating, but also um, sort of containing that to a specific space and right. to a particular form. So, yeah, yeah. It, it actually relates in, in some ways to the questions you're asking before. Hmm. This is fascinating, the idea that speech can transmit 
madness, like a, a sort of virus almost mm-hmm. from body to body. Um, and I wonder if the form of um, the forms that Jenny's talking about and that you're also talking about this idea of letter writing and dialogue and things, that seems to me that it would that there would be a very natural interaction between those two, as you're talking about with free and direct style as Austin's mm-hmm. coming up. And I wonder if you had any um, more examples of that or things that you could, insights that you had um, uncovered just about this idea of madness being transferred between mm. bodies. I find that fascinating. Well, I think it's a very old idea, but it's something that is coming up quite a lot mm-hmm. um, in late 18th century and romantic medicine. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Wollstonecraft context is very interesting because there it's much more directly related to um, the condition of women. Mm-hmm. So the character Mariah says, um, you know, I was bastied forever. Um, she's, mm-hmm. she's actually incarcerated in a madhouse, um, and yet she finds papers um, and starts writing a journal. She starts writing the memoirs that actually form the text of the book. Mm-hmm. So there's always this kind of tension between expression and um, oppression mm. and how the woman writer navigates that mm. boundary. But um, then you get into a problem of reading and criticism too because then you're applying this critical eye to a text or, you know, this is most obvious in, like, a Madhouse case history, but to any text, really, um, your critical eye is, like, looking for the defects, or it's, mm-hmm. like, looking for the subtle variations. Sure. And so, you know, really, the argument of the, of the book that I'm writing is that our modern literary practices of critical reading are coming out of this kind of symptomatic, diagnostic context. Interesting. Yeah, and that we're, we're really trying to perform a diagnosis of a text by mm-hmm. looking for the little variations within it. And it's a, it's an idea about form being organic and um, almost as though it's like a tree growing mm-hmm. into its perfect shape, right? right? And this is a very romantic idea mm-hmm. that Austin's contemporaries like Coleridge mm-hmm. are developing. So in fact, you know, it's um, very typical of, of that moment to think about a literary text as analogous to a body and able to communicate certain things the way a body communicates them. Hmm. That I mean, that's truly fascinating, and thinking about books as sort of bodies as well, maybe. I, mm-hmm. I work on the, the Middle Ages, and so um, books are written on parchment skin, and thinking about the skin covering the text, and then reaching out to somehow interact with the skin of the reader is something that I've been thinking about in my own work. And I think it's fascinating that this idea of text as body, that you can sort of map it onto human body, even through through diagnosing illness and sickness and looking to, to cure a text in some way, I think is fascinating. So I think that's really beautiful, the uh, interaction <laughs> of your skin touching this other skin. Um, which is the text. Yeah, I mean, by the Romantic period, it's not on vellum anymore. Right. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I think the, the tradition persists, and they yeah. do have all of these very theoretical conceptions about how the text is not a mechanical object, it's an organic object, right. and you should treat it as something that's kind of grown into its perfect shape. Hmm. It's like it has a, it's a seed. It has the potentiality of this perfect shape in it, and then it's up to the writer to kind of 
pull that out and allow the text to grow into its perfect shape. And it's really funny because so much of the literature from that period is also, you know, really fragmentary and like in draft form and has all of these, you know, textual imperfections, we might think. But in fact, it really does have to do with the text as a body. Mm. And I mean, getting back to Austin, we can Mm. think about how the texts that survive her kind of take on this relic status. Yeah. Her, I mean, she has a huge following. Um, her acolytes, I would almost say, um, <laughs> who go and visit her grave in Winchester or her final residence in Chawdon mm. or her, uh, the Austin Museum in Bath, right? right? There are all these locations in England that are like almost um, holy sites for, yeah. you know, doing your <laughs> Austin tour. Um, and what's interesting is that Austin has very few personal relics that survive. She has a couple of pieces of jewelry. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a pop star tried to buy a ring that belonged to Austin, and that was blocked uh, like a couple of years ago. Like her, her personal effects are so limited. So really what you have <laughs> in place of her body now is the text that kind of come to represent her life. I see. But we actually have a very sort of partial sense of who she was mm. as a person because after her death, her sister burned many of her letters, or censored anything that was considered inappropriate. And we know from her juvenile writing, and we know from the surviving letters that she had a hilarious sense of humor, often quite inappropriate. (laughs) And so, you know, we we have, unfortunately, um, the the historical record of her has been sanitized. I see. Yeah. So you have to sort of look back at the texts and then at any surviving manuscripts, Mm -hmm. which also take on this kind of iconic status. Um, to try to get to who the real Austin was. So this, again, goes back to the idea of intimacy with the author. Yes, absolutely. I love that idea of books as relics and texts as relics. Um, it, I mean, it's very medieval, of course, mm-hmm. and, and also the fragmentary nature of the evidence and stuff like that. I think about these questions a lot, but yeah, I've, that, that is fascinating to me now I'm drawing all these parallels in my own head and um, the the rituals of saintship and stuff like that that are now associated with Austin and Austin studies. That mm-hmm. That is fascinating. And it really does center on this idea of body, right? Right. I, I yeah. mean, in a way, it's unique, and it's a mm-hmm. modern phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, I think quite a lot of the Austin fandom comes out of, you know, film adaptations and sure. things from the 1990s and so on. But there's a longer history of it where Austin is really venerated um, as mm. being a sort of special category different from other writers you know right through the 19th and 20th centuries but as well it's also sort of a characteristically romantic phenomenon where you also have that for writers like Keats who die early and leave a small body of work and you know every single bit of it has to be parsed and mm. extracted and um, the writer takes on a sort of almost superhuman status and then mm. but you're still sort of losing contact with who they were, right. in a sense. Yeah, it's always it's a it's a project of trying to recover the writer, which seems to animate so much work that's happening now. Right. Yeah. yeah. Both sort of inspiring the superhuman nature while trying to recover the humanity mm-hmm. of the person. That yeah, it seems it seems fascinating and difficult <laughs> difficult <laughs> to to sift through. Yeah. But. Although that that's one thing I really like about the at home in the world um, mm-hmm. because. It is really trying to upend some of what has been said about writers and actually situate them in a different kind of narrative. 
um, where you know female writers are interested in travel, they're interested in exploration. Their biographies actually show us this, mm-hmm. and especially in the case of the Brontes. Um, and yet, you know, why have they been represented in such a way right. up to this point? So it's a it's a chance really to reevaluate not just the uh, the text but also the writers and what are their motivating values. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, um, and I hope that that many people, after hearing what you've said about these wonderful books, do go check them out for themselves and gain a closer uh, relationship with Austin and others as a result. Thank you again for having me, and I hope that for listeners, too. These are wonderful <laughs> books. You should read them. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Jenny Davidson's reading Jane Austen. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Bruce Robbins' book, The Beneficiary. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.